That means a whole of what is commonly called powerlessness, and perhaps some beyond that. And then they began this. It was not completed during Joshua's lifetime, and uh, it really went in uh, a number of stages. They um, they got the first the Transjordan under Moses. Under Joshua, they got a, a considerable part of central and eastern Canaan. And then after his time, this dragged on. The Israelites were showing themselves considerably more in favor of marrying the Canaanites than fighting them. And um, it wasn't until the time of King David that this was really a completely ineffectively completed. And this made a problem, the fact that they had not really exterminated the Canaanites as God had commanded, left these people, and they became a uh, sort of a religious seduction to Israel in the centuries that followed. This is partly why Old Testament history, all the early parts, clear down to 500 B.C., is such an endless campaign against idolatry and polytheism. Where did they get that stuff? Well, they got it, first of all, from the Canaanites. Now, the book of Joshua, even in the part that it covers, is not a history as we would write it. This is selective. It, um, it gives the story of the fall of Jericho in detail and the battle of Ai. And um, then um, the other campaigns, it gives capsule statements uh, enough to show that God was faithful in keeping his promise to the people of Israel. It is not intended as a complete account of everything that happened from the military or historian's point of view. Now, the uh, whole account of the uh, conquest of Canaan is tied up with this question of chronology involved in the date of the Exodus. How many years after the Exodus was the fall of Jericho? Well, uh, Mr. Thompson, when was it? How many years after? Forty years later. All right. If you hold the Exodus was in 1441, okay, according to the Bible, then Jericho fell in 1401. If you hold the Exodus was in 1447, then Jericho fell in 1407. If you hold the Exodus was in, 14, in 1290, then Jericho fell in 1250. Now, this is one thing that all schools agree on, and there's 40 years between the two. So we're still here up against this problem of the early versus the late chronology. And uh, the early date is uh, supported by uh, the, uh, in my opinion, most reasonable interpretation of the biblical data, and it's under claims that is permitted at least by archaeological findings. Um, the late date involves various serious difficulties. Now, the date that he says is supported by the biblical data is 1401, 40 years after the Exodus. The latest conservative scholarship on this gives a six-year shift here, 1447 down to 1407. Actually, I don't think it's enough to that long ago, give or take six years, doesn't bother too much. Dr. John Garstang, who excavated Jericho early in the present century, now dead, also claimed that his findings supported the 1400 or 1401 date for the fall of Jericho. But this is challenged today as poor Dr. Garstang is challenged after his death by Miss Kathleen Kenyon, who claims he greatly misinterpreted his findings 
And that what he found that he claimed was the, the horizon or layer from Joshua's day was actually a much earlier one and that the remains of the Jericho of Joshua's day long since have disappeared and been eroded away by weather and so forth, wind, rain, water, and so on. And Miss Kenyon is a, she's still in business, she is a believer in the late chronology and unlike Dr. Garstang, not a believer in the infallibility of the Bible, and this may have um, perhaps colored her, I don't accuse her of dishonesty, but may have perhaps influenced her opinions on this to some extent. Now, uh, it is alleged by Miss Kenyon that uh, the evidence of Jericho is negative. This doesn't prove anything about the account of Joshua. He doesn't say disprove it, just doesn't prove it, like I can claim. The uh, next thing that is claimed by those who hold the late chronology, uh, Dr. Albright, who died about 10 days ago, William Foxwell Albright, he was a great uh, champion of the late chronology. He held the Exodus was uh, about um, 1290, and the fall of Jericho about 1250. Albright understudied under Albright. Under the way I book, had got his PhD studying under Albright, and uh, Albright was a mild liberal. He he uh, disagreed with with outstanding liberals on many things. He accepted the Book of Genesis after the time of Abraham as basically uh, authentic and historical, although not in every detail. Uh, real downright liberals would call him uh, Albright a fundamentalist, but uh, I don't think we would call him that. Anyway, um, uh, those who follow him have claimed that findings at three other places rule out the 1400 and something dates for the fall of Jericho. Ai, Lakish, and Kabir or Kirjath Sefer. Kabir or Kirjath Sefer. This means, Kirjath means town and Sefer means book. This is book town. Alright, um, now, especially Ai, you remember they captured Jericho, and then um, Ai was a little prudent. They just sent a small force. This was supposed to be a dead easy pushover, and uh, to everybody's surprise, the people of Ai won the victory, and a large, large number of Joshua's men were killed. And this was tied up in the Bible with the uh, the sin of a man named Achan, who had, contrary to uh, God's command, had. Uh, sequestered a quantity of gold, a goodly Babylonish garment, and one thing and another, and buried them in his tent. Everything of Jericho that was not dedicated to the treasure of the Lord was to be destroyed. And this fellow copped some of it for himself. And uh, as it is related in the, in the Bible, the real reason for the defeat of Ai was that God was not uh, backing the army of Israel because of this prince. And finally, um, this fellow Achan confessed and he was stoned to death. Now this does not mean he went to hell necessarily. It is possible that he repented and went to heaven, but anyhow they put him to death. And after that they went against Ai another time, and this time they put an ambush against it and captured it. And um, it was considered a small and weak outpost of Jericho. Jericho itself, according to Garstang's findings, was not very big, six to eight acres. And Ai was smaller than that. The Geneva campus at present, I believe, about 38. So you can see Jericho was small, and this is almost infinitesimal. It wasn't big. Now, they haven't found um, 
There's a noun there that is said to be the ruins of Ai. The word itself means ruin. But uh, in this noun which has been dug into, that has been traditionally called Ai, there is an occupational gap from 20 of a thousand years, from 2200 B.C. to 1200 B.C. So it is claimed that in Joshua's day, even if you hold the late chronology, this place was empty and uninhabited. And therefore, the Bible account can't be true. Now, what do you do when you come up against something like this? Well, uh, are we going to say, okay, this is too bad. I used to be a Christian, but now I can't be one anymore. <laughs> All right, so now there are various possibilities about this, you see. Uh, Mr. James, it isn't so simple as the critics make out. Um, in the first place, is this really the site of Ai, this room that has the name Ai tagged on it? It hasn't been proved to be. They didn't find the city hall with a little foundation stone municipal building Ai or anything like this in there. So this ruin has not been proved to be the real ruin of Ai. Maybe Ai was somewhere else, and this isn't not the real place. In that case, of course, they won't find it. Not there. That's one possibility. Dr. Albright and others said that um, this is an etiological rule. That's the, the calling of this place AI. Uh, there was a, the word AI means ruin, and that there was a ruin here, and that the real um, battle was at Bethel, I believe he said, and later on uh, they got fixed up and uh, attached the story to this ruin not far from Jericho, but the real fight was fought at, at uh, Bethel. Now, under comments on that, he says there was indeed a terrible fire at Bethel. It was destroyed in the 1200s B.C., but after Joshua's death. Um, I think even on the late chronology, this would be, well, it would be during the lifetime on the late chronology, perhaps in the 15th century or the 1200s. But there's no record of anything happening there uh, anywhere near 1400 or 1401. This idea, ideological, means to explain the cause of something. Why is this room called Ai? And that this story in the book of Joshua, which originally ought to have the name Bethel tagged onto it, had somehow got misplaced and somebody goofed in copying this manuscript or writing this book. And so, uh, they said it about AI and connected it with the story that uh, is the fall of Jericho. Now I wonder, Mr. Barrett, if you believe in the Bible as the word of God, can you buy that kind of a theory? This involves all kinds of difficulties as to your faith in the Bible as God's word, if it's uh, mixed up like that. Of course, theoretically, it's possible that people might make a mistake in copying manuscripts, but it's hardly possible that they would lift an entire narrative of the fall of a enemy camp or city clear out of its context and put it in somewhere else. This is hardly, uh, hardly credible. Now, a third possibility is that of um, a Roman Catholic archaeologist, uh, Father Vincent. I think he's still living and working over there. And this uh, ties in with, uh, this is probably correct, according to Under, and uh, I think uh, a good reason he said it. Joshua chapter 7, verse 3. Uh, this verse stresses the smallness of Ai. 
They returned unto Joshua and said unto him, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai, and make not all the people labor thither, for they are but few. So this was considered and recognized by everybody as a small and unimportant place. Now, this the Catholic archaeologist, Dr. Vincent, suggests that um, Ai was not really a city. This was a military outpost, a camp perhaps of a temporary nature. Like, uh, well, let's say the U.S. Marines dug in it uh, outside of Danan in, in South Vietnam. And later they moved out of there again. And that this was a temporary military encampment. And this kind of thing does not dig in and put stone foundations or big foundations in the soil that would last through the centuries. Uh, as the occupation was short, so the traces left would be few and small. And therefore, this is why nothing really conclusive has been found in the ruins of Ai. And um, maybe this mound with the occupational gap of a thousand years, all right, but nobody lived there for a thousand years, as far as the remains discovered show. But uh, there could have been a military outpost there for a year or two in Joshua's day, but left no trace. And uh, it says in the Psalm 103, the wind bloweth over it and is gone and the place there else shall not no more. And everything just took over again. This is quite possible. And it is also possible that the real location of Ai hasn't been discovered yet and will be discovered at a future date. So uh, let's say what hasn't been discovered, if it hasn't been, doesn't prove anything. You remember my crazy yarn about the archaeologists that found wires in Egypt and said this proved they had this telegraph and then in Babylonia they found no wires and this proved the Babylonians had the wires. Now what hasn't been found doesn't prove anything. Lachish. Right. <laughs> a place mentioned in later Old Testament history. Uh, this also is alleged to disprove the early date of the fall of Jericho, the 1400 or 1401 date. And the evidence shows that Lachish, in southwest, 26 miles southwest of Jerusalem, this place was the Leavenworth or West Point or Alcatraz, if you will, of Palestine under the Canaanites. And later it became a strong point under Israel. A fort, essentially, not a city, but a fort. A very strong place. <clears throat> but this was up on a high mound. Uh, an archaeological uh, mound on the surface of the land. This was destroyed by a violent fire about the year 1230. But there's no evidence at all that connects this in any way with the Israelite conquest of Canaan under Joshua. You see, it is perfectly possible. Joshua and his forces captured this place, the Lachish, in the, around the year 1400 or soon after that. And still, it could be destroyed by a fire in the year 1230. Why couldn't it? Uh, perfectly possible. Um, a fire can destroy a city at any point in its history. Now, this is tied in with the Joshua chapter 10, verses 31 to 33. Joshua passed from Libna and all Israel with him under Lachish and encamped against it and fought against it. And the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel, which took it on the second day, and smote it with the edge of the sword and all the souls that were therein, according to all that he had done unto Libna. 
And Horn King of Jesus came up to help Lachish, and Joshua smote him and his people until he had left him none remain. Now, <clears throat> it is perfectly possible that this happened in soon after the year 1400, and that the fire, that the, the devastating fire that the ashes have been discovered of did happen in about 1230, a long time, you see, after the conquest under Joshua. So this, again, is circumstantial and negative evidence that doesn't really prove it. And uh, as a matter of fact, the, uh, the claim made in Joshua chapter 11, verse 13, As for the cities that stood still in their strength, Israel burned none of them, save Hazor only, that did Israel burn. Stood still in their strength. This, as we noted on a previous day, is a mistranslation based upon failure to understand a point when the King James Version was made. This should be the cities that stood on their tails or on their mounds. And Lachish was certainly one of those. The mound is still there today. You can see it. You can climb it if you want. And uh, therefore, uh, this uh, would indicate that Israel did not burn it. And therefore, the fire a hundred years or more later was caused by someone else coming up, maybe the Philistines or somebody did that. Now, Debir, all baked Mishkin, 13 miles southwest of Hebron. This again is a similar case. Now, this city was destroyed and burned about the year 1200, but there's no evidence that this had anything to do with Joshua's conquest. It could have been burned at any time in its long history. Now, uh, a more important question involving the general belief about this, 296. In view of the controversy about the date of the conquest, what is the conclusion of the textbook? This is Dr. Unger's conclusion from all these various data. There is obviously a subjective element in the dating of archaeology. We should be extremely cautious about accepting quote-unquote findings which contradict the dates supported by the Bible itself. That the archaeologist's dating contains a subjective element is shown by the variation which exists among themselves. You know, in medicine, if there's 50 things recommended to cure a certain disease, it's almost uh, an axiom that none of them is effective. We used to have 50 different things to cure malaria, make root oil, and so forth. Uh, snake oil and so and many things like this. Ginseng, cure malaria. And they wasn't known what caused it. Caused by an infection, it comes from the body of a mosquito. And quinine uh, was discovered that really cures malaria, or at least controls it. And all these other remedies promptly passed out of the picture because it was something effective discovered that really did do the job. Now, where there's a great variety of opinions, this indicates the subjective element. If the evidence was really conclusive, these archaeologists would agree about the date of the Exodus and so on. And the fact that they disagree, this shows they're handling the data differently. The data are the same for everybody, but they're handling them differently because of their basic assumptions with which they approach it. And those are different. Is there anybody here that hasn't heard my crazy story about the rabbit burger machine? Have you heard it? All right, so let's study it. Bear with me, and I'll tell it to Mr. James. The point of this is that everybody has basic assumptions as they approach a field of scholarship. 
And it's for certainty that if the case uh, maker, their conclusions will be in line with their assumption. A fellow was selling rabbit burgers for 10 cents. He had a roadside stand and a machine. So you put the rabbit in at the top and the burger comes out the back. <laughs> all cooked and in a bun. 10 cents. And somebody said, how can you do this without going out of business? He said, well, to be honest with you, I have to admit, I mix a little bit of horse meat with it. But I always do this honestly, one horse to one rabbit. <laughs> now, the point of this is you don't put horse meat at the top and get rabbit burgers out at the bottom. If you put horse meat in, you get horse meat out. And uh, Thomas Carlyle, and his best book, said that as the heads of my countrymen become cabbages, that they think they can start with the premises of French and German rationalism and not end up with the conclusions of Scottish evangelical orthodoxy. Now, you can't. If you're a straight thinker, your conclusions will be in line with your initial approach. This doesn't determine every detail, but it determines the basics, plan, and character of your conclusions. And that these archaeologists come out with various conclusions is because they have various kinds of assumptions to start with. This is not simply a matter of putting these data into the computer and buzz, turn the thing on and see what you get. It's a process by human thinkers who have to think in terms of their basic philosophy of religion and reality and history and whatever it is. They couldn't do otherwise. And if their philosophy is a certain kind, their conclusions are going to be along that line. Now, one of my professors, Dr. Robert Dick Wilson, who was famous for some things he said, one day he said, Blessed is how I'd love to be out of here. Blessed is the man that will not trust a professor. And another time, remember, gentlemen, opinion is not proof. And another time, no man living knows enough to disprove the truth of a single statement of the Old Testament. He knew 35 languages. He learned 35. and 15 years doing it. All right, now we'll go on from there. The effects of the conquest of Canaan. The people of Israel broke the back of the Canaanites, or Amorites, as they were also called, and those are interchangeable names, but they were not totally exterminated as God had commanded. What was Joshua's greatest political boo-boo? Pardon me, mistake. Mr. Betty, what was the one thing he did that was the worst mistake he made? Gibeonite without investigation and without consulting the will of God. And he got taken in hook, line, and sinker by these rascals. They were from over the hill, a few miles away, and they claimed to be from a far country. And he, made a, he and the elders of Israel swore an oath not to destroy them. And then they found out they'd been deceived. And there was a strong demand that that oath be violated and because it was obtained by fraud, which I can sympathize with. So Joshua said, no, we, we, we cannot violate our oath. We swore in the name of the Lord. You notice the people of Israel were an oath-keeping people. And even the Gibeonites believed this, who had a different faith. Believed the Israelites, once they made an oath, would keep it. And so Joshua called in, why did you fool us like this? Well, we're scared of getting killed. It's understandably not. And uh, you're going to kill us, are you? No, no, we promise you. We won't kill you. But look, that's all we promise you. You're going to be hewers of wood and bars of water for the temple of our God. We won't kill you, but that's all. That's all you get. 
Fine, that should have just dandy. <laughs> so uh, here were the Gibeonites. Israel was pledged not to destroy them. Pretty soon, the other Canaanites ganged up on the Gibeonites, mad because these people had made a separate peace with Israel. And the Gibeonites come shouting to Joshua, Come, quick, help us, that we're being attacked by the Canaanites. And Israel has pledged themselves to defend these people, so they have to do it. Now, this put a block of let's say, unconquerable territory. Not unconquerable for physical reasons, but because their conscience wouldn't let them do it after they had made that oath. Right in the middle of the country. Here was Jerusalem to the, to the east. They captured part of this, at least during Joshua's lifetime, and lost it again to the Jebusites, who held it in some kind of King David. And next to that comes the Gibeonites, right in the middle of the country, about the middle from north to south and the middle from east to west. Here's this box where they promised their word of honor in the name of the Lord not to do anything. And then further over are the Philistines, whom they were unable to conquer. Now I am sure that if Israel had been truly faithful to God, he would also have enabled them to conquer the Philistines. But uh, they were not, and he did not. So here's a block right across the middle of the country, Jerusalem, then the Gibeonites, then the Philistines. There's a block of non-Israelite territory dividing the north from the south, and this really laid the roots of that uh, sad division later into the northern and southern kingdoms under the, after the death of Solomon. It developed a sectional antipathy and jealousy and factionalism, and uh, this probably began right here where Joshua made the mistake of making this treaty and, and these promises and these solemn pledges to these people and this divided Israel in the north from the south and prevented easy contact between the two. Now, uh, the result of leaving uh, uh, unconquered Canaanites in some parts of the country, Unger says quite truly, I'm sure this is correct, they proved a religious snare to the Israelites as God had warned. 300, what moral or ethical problem does God's command to destroy the Canaanites involve? Involve. The problem of how this is to be reconciled with God's justice and with his love. This has bothered many people, uh, not least ourselves. Is this genocide? Can this be justified? God commanded them to exterminate the Canaanites completely. Now, let me say, there's a learned article on this by... Uh, I think it's Dr. Meredith Klein in the back issue of the Westminster Theological Journal entitled uh, uh, The Exclusion in the Decalogue. He claims that this is a preview, a pageant or type type of preview of the Judgment Day at the end of the world and that this is not ordinary warfare, that this um, cannot, would not be justifiable today, cannot be justified on ordinary grounds even for ancient times, but that God commanded it, and that it is so comparable, let's say, to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, a divine judgment, which is a small-scale preview or a type uh, beforehand of the great judgment when God will judge the world at the, at the end of the world, at the last day. And the, the difference being that in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was natural forces that rained down them, fire and brimstone and so forth, and in this case, the Israelites were commanded to execute the judgment of God on these people. Now, this still bothers us some. However, something can be said about it. Philo of Biblis, a Phoenician scholar, lived about 100 A.D., at the time of Christ. 
he wrote an account of the Phoenicians, and a part of this we have in the uh, Greek writings of the early church historian Eusebius, the father of church history. And this guy Philo, he was himself a Phoenician, therefore a Canaanite, uh, the successor to the Canaanites. He based his statements on an earlier Phoenician named, uh, the euphonious name of Sanchoniathon, supposed to have lived uh, somewhere uh, 700 to 500 B.C. Now this guy, uh, this man, uh, Philo of Biblis, painted the Canaanites as pretty, pretty awful. But scholars discounted it. They thought it was biased and sort of a fiction romance or something like this and held that there was no real factual or historical value to it. And they said the same thing about the data given in the Bible about the Canaanites, how awful they were, what the inhuman and, um, and really horrible features they had connected with their religion. These uh, critical scholars discounted this. They said this is biased. You say things like this about your enemies. I remember in World War II, we had posters about the war with Japan. The Japanese were always pictured as sort of ogres, looking like a half cross between a human and a gorilla. Um, this is a travesty. They were just as good looking as we are. It's a different type of face, but the um, Japanese aren't, uh, aren't like that. And great big buck teeth and squint eyes and so forth. They're not like that at all. Anyhow, some of them are very good looking. But... Um, you see, you, you paint your enemies in this uh, sort of a way. This is propaganda. So the scholars said, follow a Bible, okay, it's propaganda. The Bible, this is also propaganda. You can discount it accordingly. Now, uh, what the Bible says about them is pretty bad. It says one place, the land vomits up its inhabitants. In other words, they make God sick at his stomach. The land vomits up its inhabitants. That's a pretty awful thing for God to say about a country. And you may be sure it wouldn't have been said. That's the reason for it. Now, something has been discovered that has vindicated both the Bible and Philo of Biblis. Philo of Biblis is dead. You can't get the benefit of this, but it's vindicated his writings. And this is the discovery at Rosh Shamra. This was the place on the north Syrian coast. It's 10 miles, 12 miles, I believe, north of Latakia where the Reformed Presbyterian Church for many years had a missionary work and still has a school, Latakia. This is a few miles north of that. I can tell you who has been at Rosh Hashanah and seen the digging, Mrs. Helen and Florence Fatal in the library. They have been there and seen it in process, the digging at Rosh Hashanah. The ancient name of this place was Ugarit, U-G-A-R-I-T. And this was excavated by a French uh, society, 1929 to 1937, and I think maybe they're still doing something there. And uh, this is one of the major archaeological jackpots of the ancient Near East. Uh, layer under layer, going back uh, far more anciently, it goes clear back really to Neolithic times, and way down into the historic period, later than the time of Moses and Joshua. So it covers the whole period that we're dealing with here about the conquest of Canaan under Joshua. Now, the material, the, the Arabic name of this is Rosh Shama, the ancient name Yugarit. Uh, thousands, I guess, of written inscriptions were found on clay tablets uh, in a cuneiform type of alphabetic script, and the language is very close, but not identical, with biblical Hebrew. Hebrew scholars had very little difficulty in figuring this out. Ugaritic. 
And this material has confirmed and substantiated the accounts of the ancient Canaanites found in Philo of Biblis and found in the Bible. Uh, Unger summarizes this this way. They are alike in moral abandon, fondness for descriptive names and personifications, and primitive barbarity. That is, the material at Rosh Hashanah, found in the, uh, the deposits underground just recently, a few years ago, you see, well, the early part of this century, uh, in comparison with Pharaoh of Biblis and with the statements in the early books of the Bible. Uh, if you let that be alone, he'll let you alone. We hope. <laughs> All right. Now, um, um, these are parallel at many points. The, uh, Unger says the primitive barbarity of these people, their moral abandon, lack of any kind of a real moral standard, and uh, some other details. Now, uh, the Canaanite divinities, the gods of the Canaanites, these are shared by the Canaanites and uh, some others, including the ancient Phoenicians. Unger says they present a remarkable fluidity of personality and function. What is meant by that statement, he suppose? Says the gods of the Canaanites are sort of fluid. This means they could run through a garden hose? Mr. James, what do you think it means? Say the gods of the Canaanites were, had fluidity of uh, personality and function. Changeable. Changeable, all right. Now, they change from male to female and back again without any trouble. This um, indicates a um, corrupt and low state of religion. You don't find this in the Greek mythology. The Greek gods are either male or female, but you don't find them swapping it back and forth like this. And um, the Greek mythology is certainly a false system, but is it in Homer, for instance? But it is, it is free from many of the corrupt features of the Canaanite mythology. All right? Remarkable fluidity of personality and function. Asherah. You read in the Old Testament about the prophets of the groves. Asherah was uh, a goddess. However, there's a difference as to whether she was, he or she was male or female at when and where. This seems to have been somewhat changeable. She is also regarded as the wife and or sister of Baal. Some places his wife, some places his sister, and apparently some places both. This is um, also, you see, the Canaanites were like that. You can have a woman who is your wife and or your sister. Is this legal in Pennsylvania? Well, not yet. Give us time. <laughs> Give us time. I see an ad just yesterday. Somebody says, is it time to remove the taboo against incest? And should, this is an ad of Psychology Today, a magazine of professional psychologists, advertised in this week's Time magazine with the titles of the articles in the current issue of Psychology Today. One of them is, is it time to remove the taboo against incest? That is, mine, your sister, your brother. Another article in there, have we come to the point where we ought to legalize the right to commit suicide? Well, we haven't got there yet. Let's hope we won't. Now then, um, Asherah, you see, ambiguous as to sex, male or female. Ambiguous as to relationship, his wife or his sister, or both or neither. 
This is uh, indicates a corrupt and low state. Now, some of the Canaanite gods, El or El, the supreme god, this word is used in the Bible as a generic name for God. It is used in the Bible for any divinity, the true god or false god. El is like the English word God, and we spell it with the capital G when it's the true God, and with a small g if it's a pagan God, but the word itself, G-O-D, can mean any divinity, true or false, you see. And El is like this. This is the supreme God in the Canaanite mythology or pantheon, but it's used in the Bible for the true God and also for, for other gods. Now, El had three wives who were all three of them his sisters. What a guy. And uh, as hunger states, an immoral and bloody tyrant characterized by uncontrolled lust. In the Bible, God created man in his image. And in pagan systems, men create gods in their image. Let me tell you that Canaanites were characterized by uncontrolled sex lust. Uncontrolled. And this they projected into their image of their gods and thought of their gods as like this too, and then worshipped them. Baal is the son of El, or El, reigning king of the gods, and he's the, practically the one in charge, and thrown on a mountain in the northern heavens, by the north star somewhere. And the several others are mentioned here. Anath, the sister and one of the wives of Baal, Astarte, um, I believe the same as the Babylonian Ishtar, and a cognate to the... Greek, Aphrodite, and the Roman or Latin Venus, goddess of love, and of the planet Venus. Asherah, wife and or sister of Baal in the later mythology, wife of El or El in the earlier, and several others. Now then, 307. What has the Ugaritic literature of Rosh Hashanah shown concerning the general character of Canaanite religion? To capitalize this, Depths of depravity, polytheism of an extremely debased type, barbarous and licentious. The Canaanite people and their gods reciprocally influenced each other. This compares unfavorably with other Near Eastern peoples of the same period. Here, among false religions of the ancient Near East, this is at the bottom of the scale. You can pick out the religion of Egypt, of um, ten other places if you want to, Arabia, and uh, while it is false and has many gods who can't all be true, of course, it is lacking in the degraded and degrading and, uh, let's say, really horrible features of the Canaanite religion. And this is way down at the bottom of the scale. Now, there were two features of the Canaanite religion that... Uh, Archaeology has discovered some evidences of. One was temple prostitution. People have been committing fornication since uh, the fall of man, I guess. But here it is a feature of religious worship. Where do you go to commit adultery? You go to a temple. This is uh, kind of a sacrament. Can you think of anything more degrading than this to make this a feature of religion? And the other horrible feature is infant sacrifice. How do you get good luck for a year? When you pick out somebody's six-month-old baby, preferably their firstborn son. They also do it to their daughters. And this child is burned alive in the arms of a red-hot idol as a sacrifice to Moloch or some other Canaanite god. 
And the parents aren't allowed to show any grief. If they do, it cancels the sacrifice and they've got to start all over with another baby. They had two ways of doing this. One way they they uh, had this idle hollow with the flu through it through the head to make a draft and heated it almost red hot and put the baby in its arms. The baby would scream and die, of course. People would dance around and clap and applaud and uh, this uh, is supposed to be... You don't fool around when you're dealing with the gods, you see. What do you give? You give the gods your best. You don't give them gold or silver. You give them your best. And that means one of your children, preferably your firstborn. Absolutely surefire good luck for another year. The other way was to dig a pit and have a big roaring fire in the pit and uh, put the baby in the arms of the idol, not hot, but at the top of the pit. The fire comes up and the baby wriggles and falls into the pit. Another practice they had was in building a city or a house they would, or building, they would put a tiny baby in a pottery urn and bury it under the foundation of the gate or the door. Some say they strangled him first and then burned him. There's no proof of this, though. But archaeologists have found about, um, oh, I suppose, the 15 or 20 of these grim reminders of this barbarous practice, skeleton of a baby of less than a year old found in a pottery jug underneath the gate of a city or of a building of some kind. Now, these are part of the features of this religion on account of which God said, the land vomits up its inhabitants. Now, just remember that when somebody tells you it was wrong for God to command these people to be exterminated. God is the moral ruler of the world. It would have been wrong if this had started from Israel, from their initiative. If this were simply, as some critics say, they, they hated these people, wanted to exterminate them, and then said God commanded it to kind of make it look better. The evidence indicates the Israelites had very little stomach for this program of extermination. And after a little uh, initial flurry, they let it go. <clears throat> the Canaanites were not exterminated, only part. And if you had cancer that couldn't be cured in your arm, you might be willing to have your hand amputated. You wouldn't want to, but you might do it to save your life. Here is a people whom God pronounced to be a cancer in the human race, incapable of cure. In Abraham's day, God had said, he would give them 400 years to repent and they uh, later would be destroyed but not yet because they hadn't reached the peak of it yet 400 years and they did not repent but only got worse and finally God gave the go-ahead signal in Joshua's day now this involves a moral difficulty for us but be careful that we look at it from all sides and don't say that um, it was wrong to exterminate the Canaanites